0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to the People, Power, Politics podcast, brought to you by CEDA, the Center for Elections, Democracy, Accountability and Representation at the University of Birmingham. My name is Petra Alderman. I am a research fellow at CEDAR and one of the hosts on this exciting new podcast series. With me here is my colleague and founding director of CEDAR, Nick Cheeseman. Nick is professor of democracy and international development at the University of Birmingham and together with the rest of our CEDAR team that includes Tim Horton, Licia Cianetti and Manuel Gerke, Nick is also one of the hosts on this podcast. Nick, it's great to have you here with me to talk about Cedar and some of the themes that had motivated its establishment.
0: It's fabulous to be here.
1: Let me start with what might seem like an odd question. CEDA stands for the Centre for Elections, Democracy, Accountability and Representation. But a lot of the work that we do at CEDA is also about the rising tide of authoritarianism. So how much do we need to worry about this? Is democracy really in so much trouble as it might seem these days?
0: I think we do need to worry about it for two different reasons. One, we should be concerned about how people live their lives and whether or not people have the opportunity to speak their minds, to live freely, to make the decisions that they want to lead what they consider to be meaningful lives. And I think the rising tide of authoritarianism has been eroding that in different parts of the world. But I also think those of us who live in established democracies have almost a self-interest here, because actually the rising tide of authoritarianism threatens our way of life. We know, for example, that authoritarian regimes are more likely to do things like create civil conflict, create violence in nearby states, invade nearby states, create flows of people, create problems when it comes to, for example, international financial flows, criminal networks. And so many of the things that we hold dear, political stability, economic progress, are challenged by living in a world in which an increasing proportion of the countries in the globe are authoritarian rather than democratic. And just to put a a fine point on that for listeners who might be wondering about where we are, we're in a situation now where in a few years time, if current trends continue, we're probably going to be seeing something like only 5% of the world's population living in full high quality democracies, just 5%. I think that brings home quite how stark Uh, the change has been over the last two decades and quite how dangerous a situation we are in, not just for democracy, but as I've said, also for ourselves over the next few years.
1: Yes, when you put it that way, that's a very scary prospect indeed. But in what you've just been talking about, there are at least two processes that we can talk about. And I know that we have talked about it quite extensively during our CEDA reading groups, during the recent workshops that we organized at CEDA. And this is that we have this process where we have a decline in the quality of democracies, maybe those that have been established democracies. And at the same time, we have the increase in the autocratization trends. And these might be either authoritarian countries becoming more authoritarian, but also countries that have liberalised and have made certain level of progress on the transition towards democracy are kind of going back and the progress is being undermined and they are backsliding for the (laughs) the want of better word. What explains these different trends?
0: Well, I think there's, there's two things that we should perhaps separate out here. The first is that we need to be really careful about what kinds of authoritarianism we're seeing and what kinds of democratic weakness or reversals we're seeing. There was a recently a paper published by Andrew Little and Anne Meng, which they called subjective and objective measures of democratic backsliding. And that was a very controversial paper, but one of the things they argue in the paper is that some of the core indicators of democracy being under threat, like for example, governments losing power and so on, haven't seen as much change uh, as we might've thought, given the narrative that we see about democracy failing and authoritarianism rising. And so I think one thing that's really important in light of their paper whether or not you agree with how they've measured democracy and there are some criticisms that they've measured it very narrowly using very specific indicators but whether or not you agree with that I think a fundamental point that they're making is important to take on board which is that there are countries in the world that are not suffering from this decline there are parts of the world and regions of the world that are not suffering from it as much as others and not everything is getting more authoritarian every year in any kind of simple straightforward consistent way so the first thing we really need to do is Take on board that point and recognize that this process is uneven and really pay attention to where it's happening more, where it's happening less, a basic geographical distribution of that. The second thing, then, I think that we need to really do is be much more careful about what's actually going on. So, one of the things we'll see, I think, if we actually pay much more attention, is that backsliding has been much more significant in some parts of the world than others. Other parts of the world have seen processes of actual democratic rupture and big shifts to authoritarian regimes. Other parts of the world have seen something that we might think of as being more authoritarian consolidation, in which essentially countries that are already authoritarian have essentially become more authoritarian. And in some of those cases, these were not countries that were ever really democracies. So it's not really the case that democracy has collapsed. It's simply the case that countries that hadn't made much progress have moved even further away. So thinking about how do we bring that into a common language and a framework that would make sense, for example, for people who might be listening now, I think what we We really need to start separating out is those countries that have at some point achieved a high quality democracy, and then we've seen that process eroded by, for example, presidents or ruling parties removing term limits, trying to stay in office forever, becoming increasingly corrupt, manipulate elections. In those countries, we have seen what we might call a gradual democratic erosion. In another set of countries that were always a bit more fragile, always had lower levels of political stability, we've seen much bigger democratic ruptures it's been much quicker but there has been a significant process of political change so for example the countries that have had coups over the last few years including places like Mali and Burkina Faso that was a really significant change from maybe a poor quality elected government but an elected government to being run by a military junta and then of course there's another set of countries around the world those countries that never really became democratic at all they were always fairly authoritarian for example Chad, Cameroon, Uganda etc which never really made it to be democratic. They hold elections, but not with the trappings of democracy, with most of the machinery of authoritarian rule still in place. And in those countries, we've seen generally higher levels of government repression, greater extension of government control, becoming even more difficult for opposition parties to mobilise and so on. But they never were democratic in the first place. And that's where I think it makes more sense to speak of autocratic strengthening. And the importance of this, I think, is that if we don't separate out these processes and understand that they're different, we totally misunderstand what's happening. And so we misunderstand how we can deal with it. And so it's really important to separate out these different processes and not do what we talk about in in some of our work, which is to commit the temporal fallacy. The temporal fallacy is to think that because all these things are happening at the same time, they're all driven by the same factors. And when we break it down and we look at different regions and different countries, we realize these are not being driven by the same factors at all. The factors are different. And so the solutions are also going to be different.
1: Exactly. And this is an extremely complex picture. And these processes are not happening in the same way all over the world. And I think it's very easy to view this problem through a singular lens and looking through it through the examples of maybe some of the big cases like Trump's America, Bolsonaro's Brazil, or Modi's India. But then, as you said, there are other cases that wouldn't fit these patterns when you have, let's say, strongmen figure rising and then dividing the electorate to On the back of the right wing populist agenda, we have to be definitely a lot more careful about how we understand and also how we offer solutions to this problem. If I was to ask you, we know that this is a very complex issue and we know that the solutions are not simple. Where does CEDA come into all this? Why was CEDA established? And what can CEDA do to help us better understand these processes and maybe help us offer some viable
0: solutions? Thanks, Petra. Well, I think you just summarized it really well when you gave that explanation and talked a little bit about America, India, Brazil, because one of the things we've seen a lot of over the last few years is kind of the assumption that what happens in some of the dominant countries that we pay most attention to in the news, and America is probably the obvious one, are basically a good prism through which to understand the rest of the world. So America has a problem with Trump, with political polarization, with decreasing tolerance, and then with right-wing nationalism and conservatism conspiracy theories and with disinformation. And that's then read as a kind of challenge to democracy into other countries and other regions where it may be much less applicable as a model. So, you know, for example, some of that story is said to be about Trump's ability to play on concerns about immigration, about national identity. Some of it's said to be related to people perhaps becoming apathetic with democracy after having it for a long period of time, perhaps being unsure about how valuable democracy is. But also often we get Concepts like globalization and the idea that populations being vulnerable to international economic trends and governments struggling to protect their populations is one of the things that's driving, you know, a kind of discontent with democracy in established Western states. Now, that may be or it may not be a a good explanation of what's happening in somewhere like America or somewhere like Brazil, but that's really not what's happening, for example, in somewhere like Sub-Saharan Africa, where again, we don't have that many established democracies, and therefore what's happening is not being driven by democratic apathy having achieved democracy for a long period of time and we also don't have really the rise of right-wing populist leaders democracy is much more likely to be threatened in the african context by an established leader who's trying to gain greater control rather than by the emergence of a right-wing rabble rouser from opposition who takes power and then subverts and changes the state i think what we really see there is the need to not try and take one lens and apply it around the world in a simplistic way and to break away from models that are simply based on what's happening in established democracies or in what we might kind of call, for one of a better term, the West. And that's where CEDA comes in, in bringing people together who have really great in-depth knowledge on different parts of the world and are interested also in having a comparative conversation. People who can speak about Brazil, India, Hungary, Benin, Senegal, Zimbabwe, but all of those countries from an actual recognition of their individual experiences and circumstances and so we start from being able to put together a map of what's happening around the world when it comes to democracy that pays really careful attention and does justice to the complexities of those cases. But then we can start to build back from that towards general patterns. So perhaps what we're seeing is not just one pattern, but four or five patterns. And we might be able to start identifying that some countries in Africa don't look that different to some countries in Asia and Latin America when it comes to their trajectories over the last four or five years years. What CEDA really offers is bringing together people who have great expertise on what's happening to democracy in specific countries, understanding them properly, and then putting the jigsaw puzzle back together so that we get a much more nuanced understanding, but still one that has real analytical power about what's happening globally and the ways in which we could perhaps try and more effectively protect things like political rights and civil liberties.
1: There are four key themes that the represent. So that's the elections, democracy, or the lack of, as we just discussed, then accountability and representation. When we talk about these different themes, I mean, in some contexts, some of these themes might be more prominent in the processes that drive the democratization. But why these four themes? There is a lot of other potential issues that SIDA could be focusing on. One of the big ones, for example, is disinformation. You mentioned conspiracy theories. Why did you, Tim, and Little our focused particularly on these four broad themes?
0: That's a great question and, and remind me to come back to disinformation in a moment. I think one answer is that some of these themes are not simply related to democracy. And although CEDA is about you know, understanding democracy, it's also about understanding how people engage in politics all around the world. And my sense, having studied many different communities in many different countries and many different regions, is that whether or not people express a demand in terms of the desire for democracy, they do want some kind of accountability of the people who rule over them, and they want some kind of representation of their voice and their position within the decision-making process. Now, that might not look like a modern Western democracy. It might not look like liberal democracy, but a desire for some kind of accountability when things go wrong and some kind of ability to be represented and have your voice heard, for me, are two of the things that I really see as almost universal values. I've never met a community that's not wanted to have those two things or an individual who's not wanted to have those two things. So for me, these go beyond the distinction between democracy and authoritarianism between different societies. They're kind of things that we as human beings aspire to and often get very frustrated if we don't have them. They're also, I think, things that if we don't have them, mean that whether or not we officially call our political system a democracy or not are actually in some ways more important if you have multi-party elections and you have what you call a democratic system but you don't have representation and you don't have accountability then your democracy is hollow right it's a sham democracy it's a counterfeit democracy it's not really offering people what they really value about a democratic political system and so i think accountability and representation are really key because they're in some ways what bring to life a democratic political system but they're all so, what I think people sometimes even look for within authoritarian political systems. There are lots of examples of people within authoritarian states demanding better quality representation, demanding better quality accountability. On the accountability strand, it's important to say that this opens up a really exciting and interesting set of research that many people in CEDA are interested in around corruption, around how we make sure that actually public services are delivered effectively, about how we make sure that people who've committed abuses, from human rights abuses all the way to financial abuses, are held accountable. That's a really important strand of research within the University of Birmingham and CEDA on the one hand. On the side of representation, I think that's really important because it also brings in a broad range of issues. So we could think here about, for example, the representation of women in parliament, all the way through to what happens to gay communities, to minority communities, to people living with disabilities, what happens to them in political systems where their rights aren't fully respected and they're not able to fully participate in politics. So accountability and representation really bring in you know, a rich set of issues which are fundamental, I think, to many of the issues that we're talking about today. Now, to come back very quickly to disinformation. I think it's true that we didn't pack disinformation into the name but I think in a sense we do have a great interest in this and it comes in of course through accountability and representation because disinformation threatens democracy by basically threatening to undermine accountability and representation by distorting the reality by undermining citizens ability to actually understand what their governments have done and therefore to be able to hold them accountable but also on the representation side disinformation, and often other kinds of problems like malinformation. We talk about disinformation as if the only issue online is fake news, but actually hate speech and other forms of social media kind of problems and bads are just as significant as fake news. And often that information isn't necessarily fake in an obvious way. It's just hostile, but it's not actually made up. That is, you know, absolutely fundamental to some of the challenges that we're seeing. And we do study that within CEDA. But as I say, I think it comes in through these alternative... uh, lenses of accountability and representation.
1: Yes, and I know that you focus mostly on the latter part of the C the name, the accountability and representation, but this is also relevant to the topic of elections. And we've seen a lot of rise of this information during the pre-election campaigns, post-election campaigns as well. And although this is now a widely accepted fact that democracy does not equal elections, but you cannot have democracy without it. So elections are very important for all democracies and the quality of them is the deciding factor and disinformation, malinformation and lack of representation, lack of accountability all feeds to these broader issues and problems. So it is really great to see the work that CEDA has been doing. It is absolutely great to be part of CEDA and I'm very excited that we are also launching this People Power Politics podcast as part of CEDA activities and that we will be able to share the exciting research that we do as part of CEDA but also that is done by our partners and other institutions with broader audiences. Thank you very much, Nick. It's been great talking to you. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for this opening episode of the People Power Politics podcast. Stay tuned for more from us very soon.
0: Thanks, Petra. Great talking to you today.
1: Thank you for listening to the People, Power, Politics podcast brought to you by CEDA, the Centre for Elections, Democracy, Accountability and Representation at the University of Birmingham. To learn more about our centre and the exciting work we do on these issues around the world, please follow us on Twitter at, at @ceda_bham underscore B-H-A-M, and visit our website using the link in the podcast description.